Hello, and welcome to the Horizon Podcast, where we dive deep into the minds of extraordinary professionals, uncovering the stories, inspiration, and wisdom that have shaped their careers. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey with you. I'm joined today by Mark Sinatra, who will talk about search funds and his journey from CEO to investor. I'll now let Mark share his background in his own words. Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks for uh, the time and opportunity. So uh, I'll start with, uh, you know, when I went to to Wharton full-time, you know, the MBA program back in the day, that's when I first stumbled across uh, the search fund path. And, you know, I vividly remember at that time, um, it, it really stood out to me as, you know, the most direct path for me to run a company without taking, you know, the risk that one would take uh, of starting one. Um, so, you know, the search fund path, like I said, really appealed to me. And it's something that I ended up, you know, pursuing you know, shortly after uh, graduation. Uh, searched for about a year and a half and then ended up buying an HR outsourcing company uh, that was based in the uh, pretty fairly rural market, uh, a couple hours north of of Dallas. Um, you know, it was an industry that I uh, developed a, a keen interest in, um, checked a lot of the boxes that, you know, a typical search fund uh, investor and search fund operator would, would want to see, right? Like fairly stable growth, recurring revenue, fragmentation. Um, and I actually thought it, it would also lend itself well to a generalist, someone like myself, you know, kind of coming in and really, you know, getting up to speed and learning the ropes, you know, of, of the industry and, and the company. Because prior to that, you know, on prior to Warden, you know, my background was really in, in you know, consulting and, you know, financial services. So um, I hadn't really developed, you know, an industry expertise or specialty at that time. Um, so like I said, cobbled together a transaction to, you know, to purchase, uh, you know, that company and the name of that company is called Staff One and ended up running that company for a period of, of nine years. Um, it was a company that uh, when we initially acquired it, it had already been in business for 20 years, right? It was kind of textbook search fund uh, acquisition, uh, owner operator, you know, reaching retirement age, wanted liquidity, no succession plan. And so his options were were really limited. It was really to, you know, sell to to someone like myself, you know, a search fund operator, or to also sell to a competitor. And, you know, obviously he chose chose option one. And um, you know, like I said, you know, it ended up running that business for nine years, longer than I anticipated. Um, you know, it wasn't the typical like you know, what we all like to to model out, you know, the, the five-year plan, um, so to speak. But it, it was really uh, uh, quite an interesting ride of, of I would say, um, you know, two very different companies. You know, the, the first three years was really spent uh, transitioning the company from what it was at time of acquisition, which was a, you know, good, stable, you know, what I would call a lifestyle company, um, you know, with loyal client base, but, you know, like I said, kind of, I would say plateaued, you know, in terms of growth and was never really going to get to the next level, like kind of doing what they, what they were doing at the time and, and really kind of taking that and transforming it into much more of a growth engine. And it, it took, 
you know, it was a pretty heavy lift, uh, uh, to, to put it lightly. I mean, it, it took, took a lot to really transform it across all aspects, right? Um, you know, people, technology, revamping sales and marketing, um, you know, even moving the company from its original headquarters uh, down uh, a lot closer into the Dallas uh, metropolitan area. Um, so, I mean, whole kind of host of changes that we're executing on. Um, and really kind of, I would say at the end of the third years is when, you know, we kind of found ourselves with a company that um, we thought really could be more of a growth growth platform. Um, and so then we pursued that path, you know, rather vigorously in terms of, you know, organic growth, um, primarily in the um, South, some markets in, in the Southeast and, and got it to a point in 2017 when, you know, we had basically had reached a point when we had uh, uh, grown our client base about six times, you know, over than, you know, what, what we had acquired and thought it was a, it was a good time to really test the market. Of course, back then, you know, the board and I thought, well, you know, we're approaching, you know, some sort of a valuation bubble and, you know, it's always hard to time these things, right. You never really, really know, but that said, you know, it'd been nine years and, and we, we said, you know, let's, let's really kind of test, test the waters and see what's out there. And, um, you know, we went through a full auction process and, you know, ending up, uh, you know, selling the entire business to a private equity backed uh, strategic, uh, you know, much larger company called uh, Oasis Outsourcing. And, um, you know, I think the transaction, you know, was, uh, you know, successful one. Um, and, you know, we went through, uh, uh, you know, a transition period, but then shortly after, really about, 12 months after we sold the company is when uh, the company that bought us Oasis, they ended up actually selling to a public company paychecks. So um, about six months after that deal closed is when, um, you know, I, I fully kind of transitioned out, you know, of, of the, uh, of the companies and took some time off, recalibrated a little bit and then, you know, started venturing into investing, you know, in search funds, um, which, you know, I think made a lot of sense at the time to really kind of leverage the learnings, the lessons, you know, the experiences that I had gone through the last nine years and, you know, to really try to, you know, give back and, and kind of shorten the learning curve for aspiring search operators out there. So I'll kind of pause there and happy to, uh, you know, dive into any area that you want. What led to your decision to leave or pivot from uh, consulting in a financial realm to acquiring a rural HR outsourcing company? Could you explain uh, what led to that? Yeah, yeah. So the, the search fund path for me, it, it was one of those rare instances in life when I had a complete 100% clarity of thought that I was going to pursue it. It's it's hard to explain, but um it was one of those things when I first initially when I first initially kind of grasped and understood the concept, I was like, wow, this is something that I guess I was looking to do, but I didn't know it was actually, you know, called a search fund and that there had already been a history of, you know, a kind of a track record, right, of of, of search funds, you know, across the country for years, right? I had no idea. And then the more I kind of dug into it, 
the more obsessed and interested I became in, in actually pursuing that as a path. Because to me, at that point in, in my career, I, I believed that the risk reward was something that made sense to me, um, you know, to spend, you know, upwards of, of two years, you know, on a searcher's salary to potentially find a company to run. I thought that that was a risk that was certainly worth taking and that the reward, if it worked out, you know, could be real compelling, you know, in terms of the, like the industry that ultimately, you know, I operated in, um, you know, as many searchers do, right. I mean, there's, there's always the combination of like the industry focused search approach and the opportunistic where, you know, you leverage uh, bankers and brokers and other uh, sources of deal flow. And, you know, I mean, I was speaking for myself, I mean, really pursued both. Right. And um, I think for, for this particular industry, um, like I said, I was, I was really interested in it because it just, it, the value proposition just, just made a ton of sense. Right. I mean, if I was going to buy, uh, I don't know, a plumbing company or, you know, manufacturing firm or software company, you know, partnering with a PEO or an HR outsourcing company made, made just a ton of sense because, you know, you, you, you know, want to, and you should, you know, really outsource like anything that's really non-core to your business, particularly for a smaller company where resources are need to be optimized and, you know, hiring, you know, um, an HR director building an in-house HR department for like 25 employees, just doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, so I really immediately kind of grasped the value proposition. Um, and the more I dug into the industry, I was like, oh, wow, like there's a lot of, you know, kind of mom and pop operators that, you know, have done well, but um, have really kind of hit a point where, you know, they've kind of reached the ceiling of scalability for them, where, you know, they kind of capped out at like one to two million in, in EBITDA, you know, was very content with with that and, and kind of letting that stabilize and ride out. Um, so I figured, you know, there could be a good number of acquisition targets just kind of based on that profile. You had mentioned that there were some fairly comprehensive transformations that took place after you acquired this company. Could you walk me through your, your thinking process? How did you approach that decision making? Well, I, that's definitely one of the things I would have done differently, to be honest. Um, you know, I think as eager first time operators, it's it's typically um, very tempting to find all of the opportunities and issues within an organization that now you've you've kind of taken the helm of and find ways to improve, right? And optimize. And it's just by nature, right? And and for like a lot of you know kind of newly minted operators that come from, you know, the fast-paced world of, you know, investment banking, consulting, or go to, you know, get their MBA degree, like that's kind of what what you're you're taught, right? But when it comes to operating, you've got to filter that. And that's definitely one thing I, I could have done a lot better, quite honestly, is I could have had a more uh, robust filter to really say, okay, here are the changes that um, on paper make a lot of sense 
But from an execution perspective, um, you know, we take a lot of internal resources. And so perhaps it makes more sense to really kind of stagger, you know, certain things as opposed to, um, you know, concurrently trying to, you know, implement several changes at once. It gave me a new appreciation for the fragility of some of these, you know, smaller companies. Um, you know, how much change can a small company really digest, you know, all at once? And when is the right time? Just because a change could make sense in your financial model or logically doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, the right thing to do, you know, at, at that time. And I mean, there's a you know, couple of tangible examples, right, on in my end. Um, you know, I, I remember there was one time like we were um, looking to change our 401k record keeper. Um, we, I think, did a bid out and found um, another one um, and, you know, at a lower cost with more investment options. At the end of the day, you know, what, how much of an impact did that make, you know, on our clients? I mean, probably like some positive impact, but nothing material in my opinion, right? But it involved like a lot of work and coordination on on our end. And, you know, that was on top of, you know, technology migration and some other like intense changes we were doing, right? So that was an example of something that we could have very likely have really tabled, right? Uh, and made it more sequential, like, you know, maybe like, you know, 12 months down the road, two years down the road even, or maybe even not even pursue. So I think when it comes to, you know, like that, this like operational value creation, it's really critical to, you know, whatever decision-making framework you use, you know, a lot of folks will use like a two by two to really understand, you know, what's the impact of that change and, you know, how much of a lift is it going to be internally? And so for those changes that, you know, are going to be high impact, uh, you know, really low execution risk or, or time, then, you know, a lot of those would really jump off the page. It's like, okay, like this is something that, you know, you may want to pursue an execution plan in the short term, um, you know, but for those changes that, you know, would be somewhat marginal impact, you know, moderate to high execution risk and time, you know, those can certainly be easily tabled or even just not even evaluated at all. And and so um any event, I, I think it's uh um definitely wise, like to your question, like use some sort of framework to help guide your decisions, particularly in the early days of of taking over the business. How have you managed to keep your team motivated and focus during these times of uncertainty or turbulence, I'm sure, as these changes were taken on? It's tough. Um, I find that in my experience, the depth of transparency and the frequency of communication are two things that, you know, it, it, sometimes like, you know, as an operator, you may, if particularly there's a lot going on and, you know, last thing anybody wants is like another another meeting on their calendar, but there's various ways to communicate, right? And I find that the the more frequent that I was able to communicate and the more that I could share, and even digging into that, most importantly, the why behind those decisions, the more aligned, the more informed, and the more bought in, 
you know, the team was right. Um, conversely, and again, you know, this is something that I hearken back and I, I definitely could have done a, a better job of in my opinion. Um, you know, if, if the leader doesn't have, you know, that frequency of communication, um, you know, and of course it depends on, you know, what's going on at the time, but, you know, weekly, bi-weekly, if the leader doesn't in those communications, like really kind of share like meaningful information, um, sometimes even if there is no, no update that can, that can be helpful too. Um, and the why behind why certain decisions were made. That last part is something that I really didn't learn right till, till later, you know, in my operating phase that, you know, team members really appreciate, you know, understanding, you know, the why behind decisions, even if they may disagree, right. With ultimately what's decided, if they understand like the thought process and the overall reasoning, then, you know, their chances of them, you know, really getting aligned and buying it are much, much higher. Right. Um, so those are, those are a couple of things that I found to be like over time, like incredibly useful if, if, if I practice that you know, more on a consistent basis. As a leader, what have been the most significant factors that contributed to your own resilience and adaptability during these changes? It's absolutely, I would say, essential for the leadership team, both at, I would say, one level down from the CEO and two levels down from the CEO. You know, it, it's critical for the leadership and management teams to be aligned as much as possible, um, particularly for, I mean, for any company, but particularly for a service company, right? Where, um, you know, the value of really what you're delivering day in, day out resides in the, in your team, right? And it kind of manifests itself in the form of, you know, response time to clients, quality of those, you know, inc of those responses, just old fashioned, you know, white glove client service. Well, the team is an extension, right, of, of the business. And oftentimes, whether people know it or not, like, you know, how the team feels about the company and how engaged they are is really kind of shines through, right? And I mean, think about Right. I mean, anytime you've, you've, um, you know, maybe go like go on a business trip, right. And like you're, you're at a restaurant or you're renting a car, you're checking in a hotel. Like it's, you know, you can tell very quickly and easily, you know, how, um, you know, engaged or how happy, you know, that employee is that you're interacting with it makes a lot of difference. Right. Um, so it all filters down, but, you know, as the, the CEO, it's true. Like, you set the tone, you set the culture, um, but it is absolutely imperative that that your team, your leadership team does a, as good a job, if not better job than you doing that as well with their own respective team members. 
Thank you. I was going to ask you for an example, but actually the next question is a two-parter and the second part of which I think you might be able to um, bake in uh, an example, expanding a little bit on that yeah. answer. Um, You're making me nervous here. <laughs> no need to be nervous, but what factors, so moving again forward the clock a little bit, what factors led to your decision to sell your business to a competitor and how did you navigate the, the complexities involved with that in preparing your team uh, and company culture for the transition? You know, like I said, like we were in, it was 2017. Um, and I think we had reached the point in the business where we got it to a place um, that made sense for us to, to see what was what was out there. Uh, we evaluated various options, um, you know, having a recap with a financial buyer, you know, private equity firm, certainly being, you know, one of those options. Um, I think to your point, you know, like what influenced the decision to move towards, you know, the strategic route or, you know, selling to a competitor. Um, you know, as you know, like the, um, you know, the board is, is, you know, really a, a governance body. And, and so, you know, representing the interest of, um, shareholders. And so obviously a very, um, you know, kind of, I would say sizable portion of a decision has to be the economics, right. And kind of what makes, you know, the most sense, you know, for, um, you know, for the stakeholders and the business, um, you know, I think at the same time, of course, like the the reputation, um, you know, certainty of close, the approach taken to integration, all of those things, you know, were other factors as well, which kind of leads into the second part, I think, of what you you asked me. Um, you know, I think what got me very comfortable with the buyer that we ultimately worked with is that they had already done, um, you know, several acquisitions in the industry. And it wasn't, this was not like their first rodeo, so to speak, to growing inorganically. And the track record they had of closing on deals and then, you know, post-close of, you know, having the uh, target companies be happy with, you know, that decision and also the approach to integration um, was really a stellar track record. Um, you know, and I had, you know, known of, not only known of this company, but, you know, I had, had kind of known of the CEO for, for a while as well. The sponsors of, the financial sponsors of that company had really good reputation. So, everything really kind of checked out from an intangible perspective in terms of the type of buyer that they were. And so when it came time, this is like the other part of your question, when it came time to really, you know, positioning my team to get ready for this and to, um, you know, explain the rationale for the decision and potentially what life could be like, you know, you can, you never really know for sure, but you know, what, life could be like afterwards, it was a fairly straightforward and easy, you know, story and explanation for me to tell because of the stellar reputation, you know, that they had. And 
I will say like the, you know, the reality really matched that in terms of like what transpired in terms of the transaction, post-transaction, like the, um, I mean, the, the team uh, of the, of the acquirer was fantastic to work with. They took a, a, an approach of a hybrid um, integration, so to speak, where, you know, I wouldn't say our company uh, was fully integrated at, at all, like in, in, but there were certain aspects um, that were integrated, you know, during the first six to 12 months. Um, but it enabled us to continue to perform from a sales, from a client retention perspective, still at a, at a very high level. Um, so there's, you know, really minimal disruption, um, you know, to our clients and our employees during that time. And so I was very happy with, with how it, it shook out. Thankfully, in terms of, you know, any operational synergy, um, you know, unfortunately, as you can imagine, you know, there were a few positions that were eliminated, um, which, you know, when you have a strategic acquisition, it's almost impossible to to avoid, unfortunately, but, but I will say, you know, those, the extent of that was, was, you know, really kind of limited. And, and, and so, you know, the vast majority of the team members, um, you know, not only kept their positions, but even uh, some of them went on afterwards to taking even higher level roles, you know, within that company. So um, it really all worked out um, very well in this particular case doesn't always, of course. Um, but, you know, I can definitely say it worked out in this case. Are there any aspects of the sale process or post-sale transition that you would have approached differently based on your experiences and lesson learned? Uh, That's a good question. I don't, there's, usually um, I can pinpoint, you know, one or, one or two things at least. Um, that you know to to approach differently i think in this particular case um you know really it it all um you know worked out quite quite well i i will say um you know like i said in the in the intro about 12 months after we ended up selling is when you know the the parent company sold and um i really didn't know that was necessarily I didn't know that was going to happen. Right. And the buyer, um, at the time for us, like our buyer, they didn't know it was going to necessarily happen either. Um, of course that said, you know, the, the financial sponsors in the deal were at that time, they were about, I think five years or so invested in the, in the parent company. So, um, you know, I guess, when you kind of think about it, like couldn't come as a shock per se, but, um, you know, I, I think back and like, you know, maybe that's a question like I, you know, could have, could have inquired about, you know, throughout the process. Um, you know, it was really like, you know, what kind of their time frame w- was and, but the reality is like, there's so many unknowns about this whole process, right? Because one day you can go from, you know, thinking you're going to sell to a private equity fund. And then a couple of weeks later, like it could do a total 180 um, due to whatever circumstances, which are, you know, in some cases likely way beyond your control. 
So that's um, probably the only, honestly, the only thing I can really think of at this time. Has your perspective on competition and collaboration within the industry changed as a result of this experience? It has. I mean, the so the default thinking, like when I um, really kind of, you know, started working with the investment banker um, on the sales process, I was initially very reluctant to do a full auction because of, you know, kind of confidentiality reasons and like just, you know, really like just protecting, preserving the fact that, you know, I didn't want it to leak, you know, that we were going through a process. Um, you know, I learned a couple things along the way. Um, first is in a fragmented industry where there's a lot of private equity already, um, the truth is everybody's always talking and I didn't really like appreciate that. Like to be more specific, to clarify, like everybody's always talking about like strategic alternatives, right? Buying, selling, you know, we, in fact, we had actually just completed an add-on acquisition two months before we were, you know, going, going through, you know, and executed on our sale. And, and so, you know, we were buying and selling, I guess. And, and so, um, I guess there's a certain like kind of acceptance you have to have where, okay, maybe accept the fact that despite your best intentions, it may get out and it may leak that you may be in the market. So you always have to be prepared for, for that scenario. And, you know, do you address it head on? with team members? Are you more reactive? Um, you know, there's different approaches. And it, it so happened, you know, in, in my scenario where I did have that happen. It did leak before close. I had to address it in, you know, one-off conversations with certain team members. And the truth is, you know, we were going through a process, you know, capital raising, you know, process to, to you know, maximize value and but that you know i was keeping the best interest of you know the company at heart as well and that you know, i wanted to make sure we went to if we were going to have a new partner it would be you know a partner that had a really good reputation that you know that we were all comfortable with um i think the worst thing you can do is misrepresent the truth and you know like say you're like you're it's not, it's not true. It's false because that, that doesn't, um, I mean, for a lot of reasons, right. I mean, like it can destroy your credibility and it's just not, not a good thing to do overall. Um, but I can see why sellers, um, in that situation, you know, would be really nervous and anxious and, you know, maybe resort to that. But I just thought it was best to really, you know, address it as best I, I, could from a transparency perspective. Um, you know, the other concern was, well, you know, the competitors or they're going to, you know, find my customer lists or, you know, they're going to like reach out, I'm going to lose clients or if the deal goes south and they pull out, um, you know, I mean, it, it ultimately was something that I realized pretty quickly in the process that I just had to get comfortable with. Um, 
you know, more information is better during that you share, you know, during the process, you know, conversely, the more you conceal is certainly sends the wrong signal as well. So I think as soon as I embrace the fact that, okay, word's probably going to get out and it's best to share and keep that data room as full as possible. Um, mentally for me, I became a lot less anxious about selling to a competitor. I got more comfortable with it. And uh, Since you've been on both sides of this now, what advice would you give to others for buying a company and for selling a company? Well, I think um, on the buying part, I mean, there's a lot of advice, um, you know, based on Again, lessons learned, mistakes made. I think, I think what's unique to the search fund model is that it's important to understand that you know this could be like very well be a long term commitment. So it's important to get comfortable with the fact that you're also going to be running the company, and sometimes that's can be an aspect that's overlooked. You know, if you're just going to buy and invest in the business and, you know, you've got an operator already and, you know, kind of more akin to like the maybe the private equity model, that's a different story, right? Because you can have a deal that looks really, really good on paper from an investment perspective. But, you know, when you put your search fund operator hat on, you've got to really envision yourself, you know, can can I add, you know, significant value as a CEO to this type of business, would I be happy, um, you know, running this type of business in this location, right? If it involves a move and, um, and I think just like having that level of self awareness and being as honest with yourself as possible, uh, is really critical. And I think, again, I think it's one of those like unique dimensions that makes the search fund model, um, you know, special. I think kind of on the, on the, um, you know, kind of fast forwarding to the other part of your question, the, the sell, uh, selling stage, I think it's critical for the, you as a CEO to really think two to three years ahead and, and, you know, work backwards to the present, look at your business as an outsider, right? Pretend you're a private equity fund, and look at the business today and say, you know, if I were to buy the business today as a private equity buyer, you know, what what would be like the key gaps, key risk areas, you know, that you would identify, whether it's, if any, you know, customer concentration, uh, supplier concentration, or um, lack of depth on the management team, you know, whatever it is, and really embark on an intentional plan to address those, um, you know, again, you know, whether it's, you know, filling a key role in your team or whatever the, the gap is so that when you get to the point of time, right, when you're really kind of preparing, you know, the company to go to market, it can credibly appeal to as wide of an audience as possible, because we all know that scarcity creates demand and, and that in general, um, you know, to the extent you feel comfortable doing this, like the, the, um, you know, if you're able to really market your business to the largest audience possible, um, you know, it's going to set yourself up to obtain, you know, uh, uh, the best result you can, right? 
Um, but in order to do that, you make, you got to make sure that, you know, your position isn't singularly based, you know, your, your, your company isn't, isn't singularly based to, um, you know, be positioned to sell to a competitor, right. Um, where it can also be quite as appealing, if not even more appealing, right. To a financial buyer as well. Understood. Thank you for that. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to, to share or bring attention to before we, we close? No, I mean, I, I think, um, uh, you know, the endeavor of, you know, buying a business and operating it is, uh, it can be extremely rewarding. Of course, the rewards don't come, you know, without challenges uh, across the board and, um, you know, sacrifices and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, I would just say, you know, if I can be of any, any, uh, you know, assistance uh, whatsoever, I'm happy to do that. Thank you. I had a question as someone who is starting their own search. It, it seems like you're convincing the the seller not to sell to private equity so that you can sell to private equity for them seven years later. How do you reconcile those two? Does that make you a hypocrite? Like, like, could you just walk me through your thinking around that? Yeah, I think um, it's a good question. Uh, I'll say this. I mean, I think, you know, if it's like the final stage of, you know, competing for an LOI and it's between a search fund or a private equity buyer, then I would say somebody didn't really do their job well because the I would say that in general the seller profile is um, you know vastly different unless it's a you know I guess a, it would be like an add-on right to to a private equity back platform. But the reasons that you know a a private equity fund would would be really interested in you know, a company as a platform deal, um, you know, I mean, just really start with, you know, the seller and, you know, kind of staying on, right. Taking chips off the table, rolling their equity. Conversely, I mean, and, you know, in search fund deals, right. I mean, it's very common, right. To have some um, equity role, but it's also very common to not have, you know, any, any equity role it really depends on, you know, what the goals of the seller. So I would say that the, you know, as a search fund um, operator and search fund buyer, the flexibility of the model can really appeal to a type of seller that would never really be interested in selling to private equity in the first place because they want to, they really do want to retire, you know, at some point in the next maybe 12 months post-close after transition period or six months post-close. Um, I also have seen a lot of sellers that have sold to search funds that, you know, ultimately what they want to do is reposition themselves and they just want to sell. They want to, you know, do sales for the company or maybe it's a software company and they just want to engineer and develop the product. You know, whatever it is, like, um, you know, selling to a search fund enables them to get out of the CEO seat and actually work on things that, you know, they, they really, truly enjoy, um, you know, that type of deal typically wouldn't really be a fit for, for private equity. So I would say that, um, yeah, I mean the search fund buyer, you know, buying in trying to, to convince, you know, a seller to sell to a search fund, not private equity, 
um, you know, once if a seller really understands and is self-aware and they really are honest with themselves about their own goals, both personal and professional, then oftentimes the answer, you know, they'll figure out the answer themselves, right? Without much, much prodding. Um, you know, and when you kind of fast forward three to five years or, or maybe longer, you know, where, you know, you get to the point where, you know, as a search fund operator, you know, you're, you're going to sell the business. Well, you know, at that point in time, that can also depend on the search fund operator's goals, because I've seen several, several search fund transactions where they're, they don't sell to a strategic competitor and they do a recap with a private equity fund to scale the, uh, you know, the company even to, to larger heights and they retain a slice of equity. So it, it's very much a, um, obviously a business question, but it's also very much a personal question about you as a CEO and a search fund operator. Are you willing to sign up to do that again for another three to five year run? Or do you want a shorter transition period? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Thank you for that. That gives me a, a lot to think about. Uh, where can people uh, follow you or see what you're up to? Um, definitely. Um, again, if I can be helpful, uh, feel free to reach out to to us, uh, my business partner, Matt, Matt Zucker at uh, ETA Equity and, and uh, or myself. Uh, my email is uh, mark with a K at ETA Equity dot com. Uh, and I'm also running an HR, uh, another HR outsourcing business. Uh, so you can also reach me at mark at aspenhr.com as well. So Great. Well, thank you, Mark, for your time today and sharing a bit of your wisdom and experience with us. Really appreciated it. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Horizon Podcast. New episodes go out Mondays. Next week's guest is Heather Coey, Manager for Community Engagement at the Alzheimer's Society of British Columbia. She will talk about storytelling for impact, a valuable skill everyone can apply. Until then, eyes on the horizon. Thank you.